Hello, it's that time of the week again. My name's Dan. This is the greatest podcast in the history of the universe. We'll learn everything that's in the galaxy. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening, for finding, for streaming, for getting in touch. Uh, It's always amazing that you're there. This is it. This is the podcast where we search out all the mysteries, the science stuff lurking around the universe, and we try and figure out what's what. Uh, This week, we'll look at a mysterious mouse-eating plant. Uh, Also, we'll learn about loads of brand new old animals that they've just discovered. We're talking dinosaurs and eagles, and I've got your questions. Uh, As always, this week, they are on birds and hearts. That's coming up. First, let's catch up with one of our favourite geniuses on the show. This is Professor Hallux. Professor Hallux Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Hello again, medical magpies. I'm Nurse Nanobot, and it's time to join Professor Hallux again in his laboratory. Well... He calls it a laboratory. It looks like a hurricane has blown through an operating theatre. What a mess! There are all sorts of concoctions brewing and machinery clanking and what looks like a wheelbarrow full of gobstoppers. Don't think you'd want to put them in your mouth, though. Yuck! Brainbox Professor Hallux is attempting to build his very own human body full of all those gory but very important bits. Let's find out what he's up to today. Hi there, and welcome back to my lab. Sorry about the mess. Must run a duster around at some point, but there's just too much science to be done. So my work building a body continues, and today we're adding the eyes. Oh, yes, lovely, wobbly, bobbly eyeballs. Of all the body parts, eyes are quite the most clever. And did you know that your eyes are the same size in your sockets as they were on the day you were born? That's why baby's eyes look so big. You tell them, Nurse Nanobot, whilst I juggle some jelly balls. The white part of your eye is called the sclera. It contains the blood vessels that bring nutrients to your eyes. The transparent part of the front of the eye is called the cornea. Behind this is the iris, the coloured part of your eye, and behind this is a lens made of a firm jelly. Together, the lens and the iris help the eye to focus. Oh, yes! Iris! It's far more than just the coloured part, though. It's actually a sphincter muscle. That's a muscle that tightens like a drawstring bag. The most well-known sphincter muscle is in your bottom. It's the one that keeps the poo in. But in your eye, it's the light out by tightening up when it's too bright. That's why your pupil looks like it's getting smaller in bright light. Try looking in a mirror and changing the light near your eye with a torch. Anyway, carry on, Nurse Nanobot. I'm stretching the eyelids over the eyeballs. The eyelids that the professor is stretching help to keep the eyes clean and moist through a very complicated process called... Blinking. Blinking is both a voluntary and involuntary action, meaning you can blink whenever you want to, but you also blink without even thinking about it. Eyelashes also help to protect your eyes, just like umbrellas. Another way your eyes keep themselves clean is by watering when there's something getting in the way, like dust or an eyelash. 
It's the same mechanism that produces tears when we're sad, although no one is quite sure why this happens. <laughs> the insides of the eyeballs are really cool. But you can't see them with just your own eyes. Opticians and doctors use a special microscope called an ophthalmoscope to look at these inner parts of the eye. The biggest part of the eye sits behind the lens and it is called the vitreous body. This accounts for two-thirds of the eye's volume and gives the eye its shape. It's filled with a clear jelly-like material called the vitreous humour. After light passes through the lens, it shines straight through the vitreous humour to the back of the eye, which is where the retina is. The retina is like a movie screen onto which the light from outside is projected. Special cells called rods and cones process light. There are around 120 million rods and 6 million cones in each eye. So what do they all do? Well, rods see in black and white and in shades of grey and tell the form or shape that something has. Although rods can't tell the difference between colours, they are super sensitive and allow us to see even when it's dark. Cones sense colour. They need more light than rods to work well. There are three types of cones, each type being sensitive to one of three different colours, red, green or blue. Together, these cones can sense combinations of light waves that enable our eyes to see millions of colours. Rods and cones process the light to give you the total picture. All spot on, nurse. If you look at a colourful jumper in a very dark room, you'll have trouble to see which bits are red and which are green. But you'll probably be able to see the pattern. That's the rods and cones in action. And the information from the rods and cones is whizzed up the optic nerve to your brain, where the images are processed. The image from the lens actually shines onto the retina upside down. But your brain flips the picture without you even knowing. Horrible old anatomy fact. Cataracts or short sight? Most kids won't experience cataracts, but may have to wear glasses to correct their vision. The eye's squishy, stretchy lens is surrounded by muscles, called ciliary muscles, which contract to change the lens between fat and thin. The lens's thickness changes when you look at things that are close or far away, so that the image is projected perfectly onto the retina. If these muscles can't change the shape of the lens quite enough, Things might look blurry, and that's why people wear glasses or contact lenses, to give the eye's own lens a bit of help. Cataracts are an eye condition where the lens goes cloudy, and mainly happens when you get old. Surgeons today can replace them with a plastic lens, but did you know that surgeons have been trying to remove cataracts for over 2,000 years? Bronze Age instruments have been found that pushed the lens into the back of the eye. And another gruesome way for getting them out was to suck them out with a straw. You'd need a very strong suck to get the lens out. Although if you suck too hard, you might end up with a whole eyeball in your mouth. Chewy. Disgusting detail. And on the topic of eating eyeballs, in many parts of the world... Eating animals' eyeballs, often sheep's or goat's eyeballs, is considered 
perfectly normal, even said to be a delicacy. Absolutely true. Although I don't think it would be very tasty. It would probably be a bit grisly and goopy with all that vitreous jelly. Well, I hope that won't put you off your tea later. <laughs> well, my body's posh new peepers are just about in place. Last few adjustments. So let's let the lightning loose and see what he can see. Totally terrific! He's blinking perfect. Next, we will be adding some excellent ears to the body so he can hear what we're all on about. Hope you can join us then for more medical mayhem. You can find out more about the professor and his body at the Fun Kids website, funkidslive.com. Professor Hullock's Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Let's get to your questions then. Uh, it's my favourite part of the show, where you send in your sciencey questions to me. You leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. I go there. I do all the digging, the science Sherlock work, and I figure out the answer for you. Uh, first up this week, this made me laugh actually. It's from Gabrielle, who's in Hawaii. Love. I'm very jealous of you, Gabrielle, that you're in Hawaii. Uh, she wants to know: Do birds pee? When I thought of that, I thought, well, obviously they pee. They're an animal. Don't all animals wee? Uh, turns out, not so much. Now, this can get quite gross, so I'll tread lightly and we'll move on quickly. Uh, mammals remove things that they don't need in their bodies by changing it to something called urea, which is liquid stored in the bladder, and that's what you wee. But birds change it to uric acid, their waste. All the stuff they eat and they drink and they breathe that they don't need, they change it to uric acid, which is less watery. Now, birds don't actually have a way to pee. They get it all out another way, in, a, in, in poos. I told you it was gross, but it's answered, so let's move on. Thank you for the question, Gabrielle. Uh, this one is from Tom, who is 10 years old, who wants to know, how, did the heart, how does the heart work? Now, your heart is a muscle. It's about the size of your fist. Now, it's got pretty much two pumps in there. Uh, one on the right and one on the left. Now, its job is to push blood and pump it around your body to give oxygen to your cells and body parts. That's what keeps them going. That's what keeps them alive, which is why blood, oxygen and your heart are really important. Now, one of the sides of your heart pumps blood to the lungs to fill it with oxygen, to cram it full of the good stuff. Uh, the other side does the opposite. It takes the blood from the lungs that's now ready with oxygen and it pushes it uh, into the body, into your veins, which takes it all around. It's one big cycle and that's how the heart works. Thank you so much for the question, Tom. If you've got something that you'd answer, like answered next week on the show, uh, leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Something huge. Listen to this. Experts have managed to uncover some secrets about one of history's, history's most elusive creatures, the woolly mammoth. Now, if that wasn't enough, how they've managed to find this out is absolutely amazing. And we're crossing all around the world from where I am here in London. We're headed to the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, to chat to Professor Matt Wooler, who's been a major part of this study. Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me today. It's exciting to speak with you. So I mentioned a woolly mammoth. Just before we get into what you've done, uh, 
I, I don't know how much of a historian you are, but can you just tell us a bit more about the actual creature, the woolly mammoth, and, and just reveal why we don't know much about, well, we haven't known much about it before you came along? Well, uh, I've, I, I probably, um, most, most people have seen like Ice Age the movie, <laughs> my, I've watched Ice Age the movie with my kids. And if you think of that movie, if you've seen that movie, um, what that movie has the mammoth, the woolly mammoth kind of doing is moving as the ice advances. And then there's Ice Age, the meltdown where the ice all melts. And then the mammoth kind of, the woolly mammoth kind of moves back again after the ice melts. And uh, that's that's a those are great movies. Those are we we all know what a mammoth looks <laughs> like, right? They're great movies, but actually, there's no science, really, no data to back that up. And so that's what we set about trying to do is trying to figure out whether mammoths moved. And I think a lot of us think of elephants when we think of mammoths. I mean, mm. they have trunks the same. They're kind of just a hairy hairy elephant in a way. And so we think of that and we know that elephants move around, but we didn't know whether mammoths moved around, uh, how much land they used and how they moved around and stuff like that. So that's what we set about trying to do. Uh, how long ago are we looking at here, Matt? I, I said one of history's most elusive creatures, but there's a lot of history. How far away are we talking? Yeah, so this particular mammoth that we studied was 17,000 years old. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's really that's really old. And at some point between that mammoth being alive and today, mammoths went extinct, which means that they don't live on our planet anymore. And so part of the science that we do is trying to figure out, well, what caused mammoths to go extinct? And one of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that is helpful for us to know is about how they behaved and where they moved and what they ate. And uh, that's pretty much what we tried to work on is trying to figure out some of that jigsaw puzzle. What were mammoths behaviors around and what did they eat and how did they die? We know for instance, that this particular mammoth that lived 17,000 years ago actually died from starvation. Wow. Uh, the end of its life 17,000 years ago ended in starvation. And we know that by doing chemistry on in this case a mammoth's tusk <laughs> so so i've got so many questions about this mammoth and 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 where it went and what it did how quickly did the idea of the tusk come to you matt when you figured out that oh we want to know about a mammoth and what it did how did you think oh we can study the tusk and we've got the science technology with us now that means we can do that yeah, you know, I, I know this is radio, right? So you can't, you know, on radio, you can't see me. I can see you because we're doing this by Zoom. But I actually have the tusk right here. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to you. <laughs> so, so here's the tusk. What? I mean, it's like, it's about two meters long. And most people have never seen a tusk like this because it's cut right down the middle. And if I it's just, it's whopping. super heavy. Oh my goodness, it's super heavy. And I'm just moving up to the camera and you can see all the little layers in there. So my kids, when they're in school, right? My, my 11 year old daughter, she's in school. And one of the projects they do in school is have been doing is a timeline, right? Mm. 11 years worth of life, like 
and putting together photographs of their life going from being 11 all the way back to when they were born, which they, yeah. they, she can't remember, but she has photographs from us. So it's a little timeline. And a tusk is like a little timeline or a big timeline of that mammoth's entire life. The tip of the tusk is when it was born. The base of the tusk is when it died. And so everything in between is a little kind of story about that mammoth's life. And it's recorded in the chemistry of the tusk. So just expand on that as, as kind of plainly and simply as you can. So what is it about the chemistry that's changing as this woolly mammoth gets older? And also, how are you finding this out? Like, how are you analyzing the chemicals that are in there to learn about this mammoth? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. So I'm sat here in Fairbanks, Alaska. You're sat there somewhere in in England, presumably, yep. or somewhere yep. in the UK, London, right? L London, England, London, England, yes. Yeah, so so the, our water that we're drinking, I'm drinking in Fairbanks, and the water that you're drinking in London has a different chemical signature. They're, they're called isotopes. And people, when they think of isotopes, or they've heard of isotopes, and maybe they haven't, but, but they think that they're bad things. But these aren't bad isotopes. They're just different chemical signatures of where you're living and where I'm living. Just, they just are, they're different. And for all kinds of complicated kind of reasons, but they are different. And what happens is that water that you're drinking imparts, it, it, it transfers a signature to the hair that's growing out of your head. Wow. The lack of hair I have <laughs> on my bald head, right? But a little bit, but, but it imparts it into our blood. There, there's a little saying with the science that I do, which is, you are what you eat. Literally, yeah, absolutely. Literally, literally, you are what you eat, but you're also where you eat as well. So we, we, we are part of like where we, where we live. And uh, that imparts a signature, changes a signature in the tusk of this mammoth. And that changes over time, like a little wiggly line. And... Uh, by measuring the chemistry along the line, we can then tell something about where this mammoth moved and what it was eating and how its diet changed and all kinds of wonderful things. So one last question before we, we get into this mammoth's life. How can you be sure that the places where it's been, the isotopes, the chemicals are still the same now as they were back then? So maybe this, uh, this mammoth went to Fairbanks, Alaska. It's drank the water in its tusk. You've got the sign that says, hey, this is Fairbanks, Alaska. How do you know what those chemicals were like 17,000 years ago? That's, that's a great question. And so um, 17,000 years ago. So one of the things that, that creates this, uh, these changes in the chemistry mm. of the tusk relate to rocks that, that make up Alaska. And Alaska is massive. I've, I've looked at a map of how the whole of Great Britain can fit easily within <laughs> the whole state of Alaska, right? It's massive. The rocks across Alaska are, if you looked at them as a colored map, it's just a complete jigsaw of different types of rocks. And those rocks, that patchwork of different colored rocks. But so the, the colored map or that chemistry has not changed that much 17,000 years ago. 
And one of the ways that we created this map is we actually measured the chemistry in little rodent teeth, little rat-type teeth, wow. so little rodents that live uh, all over the state of Alaska. And the difference between a mammoth and these little rodents is, well, they both have teeth. A tusk is a tooth. Mm. Um, and these rodents have teeth as well. And sure, they're, they're one's big, one's small. But the big difference is these rodents don't move around a lot at all. And so they're like our little citizen scientists all over the state of Alaska, taking little samples of where they live in chemistry. And we measured there and we create a map, a colored map of how the chemistry changes across the state of Alaska. And it's that map that we then compare to the chemistry in, in that tusk. Well, tell us more about our mammoth's journey. Where did it go? What did it eat? How old was it? How long did it live for? Just tell me where, part and a little bits of what you found out there, Matt. Yeah, so we know uh, we know that it is uh, it lived seventeen thousand years ago, and we did something called radiocarbon dating, um, where we told how old it is. But we also were able to tell how old it was in its lifetime. And we know by looking at the rings, like rings in a tree, mm. that it was about 28 years old, at least, in the, in the tusk itself. So 28. So that's not as old as mammoths can really live. They can live a lot longer than that. But this one was 28 years. Uh, we know that it was a he uh, mammoth. We know that it was a, a, a male mammoth. Um, because we looked at uh, genetic material preserved in the specimen as well. So we were able to kind of sequence its genome and tell that it was a male, which was really cool as well. And uh, we also know that in the last year of its life, it, it kind of stopped moving around so much. It started kind of circling the area uh, where it eventually ended up dying above the Arctic Circle, so right up in northern part of Alaska. And we know in that same time that it actually, from its chemistry, that it actually starved to death. And we also know that it, it was probably during a winter as well. So all of this is, there's chemistry in the tusk that tells us little pieces about the story. So, yeah. Very simply, how do you know that it starved to death? What, 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 it, surely it's an absence of chemicals being there from 17,000 years ago. Yeah. How do you know that it, that's why? Well, we looked at a particular element called nitrogen that's preserved and the isotopes of nitrogen in mammals, in humans, in fact, there is even some studies on humans when, when creatures starve. Essentially what they're doing is they're, they're kind of, consuming themselves. And one of the first things you start to do, <laughs> so, so I have some fat reserves on me. And so you start using up your fats. That's what you do. That's what they're there for you to, to kind of see you through a lean times. Um, but once you get through those fat reserves, you start using some of your protein reserves as well. And it's essentially what you're doing is you're kind of digesting yourself. And wow. so that creates a very distinctive uh, nitrogen isotope uh, signature. Ah. Yeah. I tell you what, uh, what's amazing about this with smartphones today and with our digital presence online, our social media, I know that uh, kind of my grandma and stuff are very, very worried that, oh, you know, everyone will know what you did in a in hundred years. Everyone will know what you did, where you've been, what you've eaten. And it turns out we know everything about a mammoth in one state of America, 17,000 years ago, using just a big tooth. Matt, honestly, I've had 
a fantastic time. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your um, your energy and uh, an interest in this in this work. Thanks so much. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, which is all about a mysterious mouse-eating plant. The Nepenthes truncata. It's a pitcher plant that lives in the Philippines. Now, they're rare, growing only on the island of Mindanao. Uh, and it can grow to almost half a metre. They've got these huge heart-shaped leaves with a wide range of colours. They're either bright greenish-yellow, sometimes they're ghostly white, and they hang down off trees. But upside... They look like an upside-down bell. They kind of hang down and then flick up, like an upside-down bell. Now, pitcher plants are the ones that trap creatures, like a Venus flytrap. Now, they grow by normally, and they thrive by dissolving small bugs that fall into it. It absorbed nutrients from the prey into its digestive enzymes, uh, which let it live. Now, most pitcher plants eat small creatures, bugs, flies. But this one, Nepenthes truncata, has been known to eat rodents. Imagine that, a curious mouse walking over its slippery leaf. Uh, and it falls in and it can't get out because of the plant's slick walls. It keeps slipping down and down and down. And then it's left there to, sounds awful, but to pretty much drown inside the plant and then be absorbed by its leaf. It can't get out, and that is disgusting. That is gross, it's terrifying, and that is why Nepenthes truncata uh, from the island of Mindanao in the Philippines, it needs to go on our Dangerous Dan list. We're catching up now with one of our favourite geniuses on the show. She's a gadget guru. This is Techno Mum. Techno Mum, engineering explorers. There's a new skate park in town with tonnes of ramps and even a half pipe. If you ask me, there should be one in every town. Hmm, imagine how cool it would be if you could build a house with a skate park inside. Instead of stairs, you could have a ramp and you could use the half pipe as a bedroom. You might have a problem with things staying put. What with all the slopes and curves? Typical engineer. Sorry, it's certainly an interesting idea, and thinking about better ways to build buildings and the cities around us is something a particular type of engineer gets very excited about. They're called civil and structural engineers. Civil and structural engineers? Sounds kind of serious. Well, building safe and pleasant places to live in is a serious job, and I bet you've tried your hand at it already. Really? Are you sure? I think I'd remember something like that. Whenever you play with Lego or build incredible structures in Minecraft, then you're a civil or structural engineer. Choosing the right bricks or materials for the jobs and experimenting with different designs to see what works best. Civil and structural engineers know how to make different kinds of structures in a way that makes them safe, steady and energy efficient and able to do all the jobs that are needed. After all, if they're building a tower block, they need to make sure that the foundations are strong enough to support its weight. If it's a bridge, then they'll think about how many people might be using it and how heavy the loads on it will be. They need to understand how building materials behave so that they can choose the best ones for the job. It's a role which involves a lot of computer technology, although civil engineers often go out to the sites too to check the building works for themselves. They can give advice to people about the best way to adapt existing buildings, like converting an unused warehouse into flats. Even more exciting is that civil and structural engineers use technology in incredible ways to make smart cities. Whoa! Smart cities? That makes it sound like the city's alive. It's much simpler than that. To create a smart city, civil engineers use technology to collect data about what's going on. This data can be used to help make things run more smoothly. Maybe they can make traffic lights go green to speed traffic up. 
or help planners devise better timetables for buses and trains. Or turn streetlights off when there's no one around. You're always telling me to turn my lights off when I'm not using them. Well, it's for the same reason. Leaving lights on when they're not being used not only wastes money, but it also consumes electricity. And the more power we use, the more harm there is to the environment. Smart cities are more energy efficient. Cool job. There are loads of cool jobs for engineers. Almost as many jobs as there are inventions. Like my skate park house. I think that could be a very cool invention. I just need to solve the problem of the sloping floor. Now you're thinking. Engineering Explorers, created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology to celebrate the Year of Engineering. Find out more at funkislive.com slash technomum. It's time for this week's Science in the News. Now, two new species of dinosaur have been found in the south of England. 50 bones have been dug up, thought to be around uh, 125 million years old. Uh, experts think that one is a big reptile-eating bird with the face of a crocodile. Uh, the other, uh, they think, was a riverbank hunter. And they've got 50 bones, they're going to do more studies. Also, Landsat 9 is a satellite that's been launched into Earth. It's got one job to take a picture of the world. It's part of a project that's been happening over the last 50 years. Satellites have been going up and down to see how our world is changing. Also, finally, scientists in Australia say they've uncovered a fossil of an unknown species of eagle that lived there 25 million years ago. Bone fragments were found in a dry lake. They look to be from an ancient raptor hawk that swooped on birds, possums and koalas. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you've got something sciencey that you'd like me to figure out the answer for for you, uh, leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really easy. Find the podcast there. Uh, leave your name so I can say hello. Five stars will help me see it. There's a little comment box. That's where you write your question. Also, while you're on there, we've got loads of brilliant science series that you can hear. Uh, there's podcasts, loads of stuff that Fun Kids makes. You can get them on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com as well. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. <laughs>